Good morning, and welcome to Beyond the Headlines. We're your hosts, Duncan Cooper, Anna Miller, and Diana Liu. This week, we'll be discussing threats to digital democracy. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at beyond underscore headlines. That's at B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. In recent years, social media has provided a platform to share and discuss things big and small, and has given a voice to the unheard that was unimaginable mere decades ago. It's given rise to movements such as hashtag MeToo, the Hong Kong protests, and Bell's Less Talk campaign. However, this democratic expansion has not been without growing pains, as it's also facilitated the growth of extremist actors, populist political campaigns, and disinformation. Canada is not insulated from the risks arising from social media and the digital era. Today, we will discuss the threats posed to democracy and the potential policy responses with thought leaders Keeler Zed and Stephanie McLennan. Keeler Zed is a communications and public policy professional, an e-democracy advocate. As an account director with Hill & Knowlton Strategies, a leading international public relations firm, Keeler advises corporate clients on an array of communication strategies, many of which include digital. Before joining H&K, Keeler served as a senior advisor to the former Premier of New Brunswick and at 26 became the youngest executive director in the history of the Liberal Party of New Brunswick. Keeler has worked as a campaign strategist on over a dozen provincial and federal elections in Canada, as well as the United Kingdom on the 2016 Brexit referendum and the 2017 general election campaign. Inspired by the results of Brexit, he has developed a passion for e-democracy and has undertaken academic research focusing on the impact of digital disinformation on the integrity of democratic systems. Keeler also holds a BA in political science from St. Francis Xavier University and has two master's degrees from the University of London in international relations and public policy. Hello, Keeler. Um, Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. We're going to start off with what is disinformation? Or I guess specifically, what is disinformation in the context of political systems? So I think disinformation in the context of political systems is the deliberate spreading of false information with the intent to deceive the the reader. Primarily in the political context, what you see is from political parties or political actors, interest groups um, that are trying to achieve a certain outcome. They typically do this through attention-grabbing mechanisms, trying to play on people's emotions to result in either a mobilization of a vote, perhaps, or even a suppression of a vote, so leading to a certain outcome. And, you know, it can be done out in the open. You could see, for example, on the Vote Leave campaign during the EU referendum, In 2016, they put on the side of a bus, uh, we send 350 million pounds a week to the European Union, let's take back control. Turned out to be a false statement, but it was, you know, very much penetrated within the electorate. Um, Or it could be something as overt as the Russian operation to spread divisions amongst the U.S. electorate in the 2016 U.S. presidential campaign. So it can really vary, but in essence, it's a deliberate act to mislead people to try and achieve a certain outcome. Would it be correct to say that people have always relied on news and media sources for political information? If so, has anything changed and why would that be a problem? Yeah, so I think there's been some trends uh, over the last 50 years where 
trust in institutions has consistently been on the decline. So especially trust in political institutions and the media. I think what it's done is it's forced people over time to seek alternative mechanisms for getting their news. But uh, I think what's happened in, in the last, you know, decade, decade and a half is with the advent of the digital era, there's something called the fifth estate where there's no longer this vertical control of the dissemination of information by, you know, a handful of powerful media outlets. Now what you have is a sharing of the power with the masses. So one person could be just as powerful as an entire news organization on a particular issue. It could be a viral video that someone uploads to Twitter that can change public opinion. So people are, you know, wanting to take back control. And I think that is, you know, a symptom of the causes of people wanting to, you know, escape the distrust that they feel towards all sorts of institutions. And I think it's only gotten worse over time. And I think what we're the type the period we're in right now is one where people are angry and you know it's caused everyone to have an element of distrust in almost all the information that they receive, whether it's online or in the media or in social circles. And it's almost made, you know, the elements of conspiracy theories becoming normalized, which is, you know, arguably dangerous for our democracy. So it's it's almost like they're both encouraging one another. The distrust of the institutions are causing people to move on towards these social media outlets and all that stuff where like mass information is so accessible and so easy. Whereas that mass information is furthering the disinformation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and the other thing too I should mention is that we can't forget that media organizations are also businesses. And there's been a downturn in media, a consistent decline in revenues, and so there's been consolidations of organizations. But it's also a hyper-competitive environment to get that headline out first before other outlets. And so what this can also lead to is uh, an inability to properly fact-check, but it also could lead to, you know, possibly misleading people uh, and how they deliberate their process for processing information with clickbait headlines. Um, because at the end of the day, of course, you want journalistic standards to be held upheld and to be at the highest degree, but you also want eyeballs on screens. And so that's something we can't forget that at the end of the day, the almighty dollar, if you will, uh, is still important to media organizations. So I think people are recognizing that more and more, and they want to take the control of uh, to themselves. And they also want to trust one another. There's an interesting concept in the study of political science of cue and heuristic takings where people will take cues from peers or elites that they trust. Uh, so for example, Anna, if I saw that you had posted something on Facebook and we're friends and there, you shared a link to an article, well, I might be actually more inclined to believe what that article is going to say because I trust you and you're my friend and I like you. Whereas it's, you know, an unsolicited pop-up ad that I've never seen before. I may be a bit more skeptical of that. Now, what you could have shared may be completely false, but me trusting you and knowing you, I may just run with that and not do my due diligence to follow up to make sure that misinformation uh, or that there is information, in fact. So there is a danger to, to social circles, and I think that we're in a time where we're it's still kind of uncertain as to where we're heading, but it's interesting nonetheless. Yeah. So really interesting how much of it kind of plays off trust, I guess. So you've kind of given us examples of how fake news and 
disinformation can be spread today, like how it's being spread right now. Um, can you give us an example of how it might have used to have been spread versus how it's being disseminated today? Sure. I think there's all sorts of examples. I mean, particularly the levers of information flow, you know, two, three, four decades ago were more so in the hands of, let's say, government in a wartime situation. Government may be more uh, inclined to have certain snippets of information. They could also easily manipulate the dissemination of information that gets reported by the mainstream media and onto other people. But beyond that, there's, you know, funny stories or actual instances where, you know, the New York Sun in the 19th century ran six essays about the civilization on the moon uh, that this gentleman had discovered and there was unicorns and man bats and this was never debunked in a in a timely fashion so you, you know there was people all over the world who had heard the story that man bats living on the moon so i think in a more modern context you have before the digital era i should say you had tabloid magazines and that kind of thing but what's different is that in the past the onus would be on the individual to seek out a tabloid magazine whereas now um, there's unsolicited information that it's uh, that's being targeted at you, you know, through monetary means by sponsoring content, for example. And so you have no choice but to consume that information, even if you didn't go seeking it out. Yeah, so that's been one of my biggest questions around all of this is how is it that before we were able to really decipher between something that was fake versus real? Like, I remember all the time you'd be in line at the grocery store looking at all the tabloid magazines and reading all the gossip and knowing you were reading fake news. Like, mm -hmm. you knew a ton of it was majorly exaggerated or just completely wrong, and you were able to realize that. Whereas now, I guess, it's just so much more common that I guess constantly around us making it harder to decipher. Well, absolutely. But the problem is now is that our attention spans, research suggests, have consistently been on a decline. Depending on which source you cite, it could be anywhere from three to eight seconds. So, you know, in a, such a crowded information environment, if I have eight seconds to look at something, it doesn't really, I bet you I'm not really going to read an article, but I'll read a headline. Unfortunately, because we're so plugged in online, we see so many headlines, we see so many posts, you know, we almost get numb to seeing new headlines or so we can be easily manipulated. And then something you also you have to consider is that a lot of this disinformation that's being spread is intentionally targeted to play on your emotions, to trigger to trigger certain reactions, uh, whether it's to, you know, reinforce how you uh, how you feel about something because maybe you want it to be true or to incite anger or any other sorts of emotions that may trigger some response. So it's it can be very dangerous on in terms of an impact on democracy, and most of the time people actually don't realize it's happening. Okay. I'm going to start moving it towards our political systems sure. and our democracies again. I know you mentioned one of your theses, <laughs> atrocity propaganda. Can you perhaps touch on this or explain <clears throat> what it is maybe and how this is related to digital disinformation? Sure. So basically, atrocity propaganda is something that's, you know, existed throughout time. But some easy examples would be, you know, during the First and Second World Wars, you'd have, for example, British newspapers would, you know, print stories about German soldiers attacking children with bayonets and singing songs about them. The intent of stories such as this was to spark anger and outrage amongst the public to, you know, rise up, make the population rise up to, you know, get behind the government to try and win the war and it's and it's the same principle as today with digital misinformation that it's of nefarious nature because it's attempting to play on people's emotions it's attempting to outrage and it's attempting to elicit action um so you know, one good example is which 
many people would reference from the 2016 presidential campaign, which was Pizzagate, which was this fake misinformed article that had uh, basically spread the theory that the Clinton campaign was somehow involved in a child sex ring in the basement of a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C., which was completely false, but it actually led to an individual going to the pizza parlor, driving hours and hours from his home with a gun with the intention to kill people. Uh, So it shows the evolution of how misinformation and disinformation in the modern political context can actually result in physical harm to people. I think that's where the line may start to be drawn. Wow. Hopefully the line does get drawn there. Can you give us an example possibly of how disinformation can affect Canadians or perhaps like start off with like in general, how disinformation can affect Canadians and then provide us with a specific example? Sure. I think disinformation, it's such a broad term, but in the in the political context, I think what it's done is it's normalized lies, essentially. And what that has done, in effect, is diminish the importance of facts, especially in policymaking and policy development, which, you know, can be rooted back to an election campaign, you know, Typically, a political party will run on the mandate that they were elected to give once they get elected. And so, you know, if you have policies that are being developed with misinformed facts or essentially lies, you'll inevitably lead to policy failure. So, you know, we make safety standards for vehicles based on statistics or we have, you know, we make sure that what people eat is safe because there's truth and labeling laws around what processed foods or, you know, what's in your food and that type of thing. But there's a poll this year, which is really interesting, that 90% of Canadians have said that they've actually been a victim to falling for fake news. And it's impossible to measure whether or not, you know, what the real impact is, because who's to say that one of the people that fell for something um, that was fake online didn't go to a dinner party and tell 30 other people? Um, some examples, you know, even in the recent federal election campaign in October, there was several articles actually that were spread around by this U.S. news agents, uh, news uh, I use the term news very loosely. Uh, this website called the Buffalo Chronicle that had spread these unsubstantiated quote-unquote sex scandal stories about Prime Minister Trudeau that were completely false, um, but were getting shared thousands and thousands of times. And so the trouble is, is you don't know how much that impacts the deliberation process that someone will take before they go to the voting booth. Maybe that's going to impact how they actually vote. And so in the Canadian context, there is some danger with that. Another example is the Conservative Party had run Facebook ads, and the image was basically a razor with some lines of cocaine uh, and was targeted at Chinese-Canadian communities saying that the Liberal Party was going to legalize hard drugs if they were elected completely false, uh, and they were called out for it, and rightfully so. But it's it's just another example of, yes, it can happen here. I don't think we've suffered the effects of disinformation on an orchestrated level quite as severely as other places like, you know, Britain or the United States, but we definitely have felt the impact. But in terms of how you measure it, that's really messy and, and hard to determine. So literally somebody might sit at their computer and write just any type of story about Prime Minister Trudeau and put it on the internet and that's how a potential spread is going. Absolutely, because I think, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier, there's just been a slow decline in the trust of institutions and so people are more and more relying on peer cues and, uh, you know, trusting bloggers and other alternative sources of information that could, you know, basically say anything without any, you know, ethical standards or regulatory standards of that they have to adhere to, you know, which major news outlets would. And that's how disinformation can get spread around. How do you control that? I don't think there is an answer for that. But I do 
think it is scary. And I think that, you know, education in, in media and digital literacy is more important than ever. And you're starting to see some of those initiatives arise around North America and the world, but it's not mainstream yet. And so right now there's a gap between generations where some people are becoming so tribal and that they're following or they're only speaking with circles uh, of similar beliefs and they're only, you know, following news or um, pockets of information that reaffirm what they believe and they don't actually hear other people's perspectives. And that makes us more insular and it makes us more polarized. And I think some would argue that we've never been this polarized. Right, which is crazy because we have access to so much more information and so many more people's views and opinions, but meanwhile it's narrowing us even further. Absolutely, but I, I'm still a big proponent of the benefits that digital democracy can, can give. Never before in human history have we been able to educate people on the scale that we have and still can. And so, you know, I have to be an internal optimist about this subject, but there definitely are some scary factors in it. And if we don't take this seriously, you know, we run the risk of continually having the population being manipulated en masse and possibly leading to bad policies being created and ultimately hurting the public good and people's livelihoods being affected by it. Yeah, absolutely. I know a lot of your experience in politics has been with different campaigning, but just maybe in general, your experience in politics, how often is digital disinformation used as a deliberate party strategy? Is this common kind of at any time or is this like much more common during an election? When would this be happening? So, you know, I've never been involved in a campaign where we've sat in a room and said, okay, how are we going to deliberately mislead people? But of course it does happen. I think the problem with politics in general is that people normally don't pay too much attention up until the election campaign. And when they do, their attention spans are, are very small. And so the problem with political parties is that they feel, and you know it's justified in some ways, that they have to be limited to specific rhetorical talking points. So they do play cute and they'll, they'll pick certain parts of the stories that they'd like to tell. Uh, you know, they'll pick certain holes in their opponents and leave other key bits of information out. And I don't think that's good for democracy. And I would encourage anyone in it who's, you know, deliberating how they vote in an election campaign to not only rely on cues from political parties. You you should always seek out different sources of information to get the full picture. But unfortunately, in a crowded information environment, um, which I would argue any election campaign is, on the platform of social media where so many people are populating platforms with thousands and thousands of stories and links. It's hard to tell right from wrong. And so what happens is that you have a lot of people who are voting in a misinformed way. So it could be really dangerous. So would, I know maybe not your party or perhaps, I'm not sure, they, I know they don't sit down and they intentionally say, let's send out disinformation, like intentionally mislead people. But... Do parties at all do that, or is that coming from external people who just have their own opinions, and that's who's going to sit at home and send out the I, purposeful? I, I do think some parties have done it, and not just in the Canadian context. Globally, uh, I worked on the Brexit referendum campaign for the Remain side, and you know the the Vote Leave campaign was handing out information on official pamphlets, or you know even on the side of their bus about facts about if we if we don't Brexit, here's what's going to happen. And they were false. They're deliberately false. And they're they're meant to outrage people and to mobilize people. You know, I, I do think that political parties probably need to be held to a higher standard than any group because they have a direct impact over people's livelihoods in the end once they get into office. 
So at this juncture, I think that if publics are subsidizing political parties, a lot of provinces, there's per vote subsidies. So based on how many votes you get in an election, there's an allocated dollar amount that goes to your party after the election and parties will rely on that money to operate. Um, there's also, you know, really attractive tax credits and structures for donations and fundraising. So I think that if a party was found to be guilty of deliberately misleading the public, there should be ramifications for doing so. And perhaps it's uh, the taxpayers' dollars that are going to these parties that are being looked at right away as being revoked if they're not being ethical and not being honest with people because people deserve a full information in a campaign environment because they need to make an informed choice. And the health of a democracy is only as strong as having an informed electorate. And right now I can tell you, and I, I think you would agree, that more and more the electorate is being misinformed about the facts, and I think it's dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. So I know you touched on this earlier, uh, briefly, but perhaps you can kind of elaborate a little more. Outside of the political kind of partisan context, can you explain the process of how disinformation can have negative implications on policies? Yeah, so I think that, for example, let's, let's pick the, the issue of climate change. I think there's a wide scientific consensus that climate change is real and action is required. And certain political actors or interest groups are weaponizing alternative facts to counter that message. And it can lead to inaction or sort of a meeting in the middle of, you know, trying to appease people politically and not actually addressing the issue. So there's a huge scientific consensus that climate change is going to impact us. We only have a few years to, you know, figure it out. And if we don't, because of the manipulation of misinformation, and perhaps there's not a strong enough chorus of people that are behind action on climate, you know, particularly in the United States, for example, that could actually lead to catastrophic results. We, we don't have much time to figure out how to correct the course on action on climate. So I think that's a, that's a good example of where misinformation can have a, a really negative impact on not only policy itself, but people's livelihoods. Absolutely. And that for sure is one of the most, like, you definitely get fed the most information, I would say, on environmental policies through social media and the digital world. So I guess my last question is, is there a clear line of what should and should not be regulated when it comes to digital disinformation? I guess, where do you think there's space for state intervention and where is it not warranted? So this is a huge debate that's been sort of burning for the last couple of years because freedom of expression and freedom of speech laws around the globe, especially in, you know, mature Western liberal democracies, are so enshrined in the values of those jurisdictions that, you know, it's hard to decipher. I think the line is when the disinformation is is putting people at harm or at risk. So, you know, going back to that Pizzagate example where someone actually was inspired to be violent and attack other with the intention to kill based on an article they saw online. I think that's where there's justification for cracking down on companies to regulate and censor hate speech or violence and that kind of thing. I think it's difficult otherwise to... Everything else that's online is subjective or it could be humor or can, could be an opinion. So you need to be respectful of... You know, that's also one of the great things about living in a, in a, in a, in a democracy like Canada is that I can go on online and I can and say what I will. But it's interesting, actually, the, the laws uh, in, in different countries, you know, actually give private enterprises the right to restrict or take away anything that's put on their platform. So in the U.S., Facebook actually has the right to take anything anyone says on, on Facebook 
off of their site. But all that to say, I think that the line definitely lies with harm and keeping people out of harm's way. Where we go from here is hard to say. Germany actually has a law where Facebook or Twitter can be fined up to, I think it's over 50 million US dollars for every day that a hateful post that is left on their platform can stay on there. So there's all different carrots and sticks to keep companies in check. But ultimately, I think what it, what it comes down to in terms of a saving grace, if you will, is education. And you're starting to see some checklists and other things that you know we're, we're teaching kids in schools, but it's still not at a mainstream level yet. And, you know, we need to encourage and teach people to laterally decipher information, to check multiple sources when, you, when, you're, when you're not sure if something's true, and to, you know, do your homework, do your due diligence, make sure that the, the information you're, you're taking in is correct. And I think as a result, you'll have a stronger and healthier democracy. But it really just depends on whether or not you're actually going to be able to access information in a timely fashion. You know, people are busy. Very true. I, I like that about the, the education. That's interesting. I was sort of thinking about what our curriculums might start really looking like. Okay. Well, thanks, Keeler. That was very, very insightful. Thank you very much, Anna. Thanks for having me. Once again, that was our host, Anna, with Keeler Zed. Our second guest, Stephanie McClellan, is a fellow with the Public Policy Forum and a member of the Digital Democracy Project, a study of the digital media ecosystem during the 2019 Canadian federal election campaign. Before joining PPF, she was a senior research associate with the Center for International Governance Innovation in the Global Security and Politics Program, specializing in cybersecurity, online disinformation, digital rights, and related policy issues. Previously, she spent more than a decade working as a journalist for newspapers such as the Toronto Star and the Hamilton Spectator. She holds a Bachelor of Journalism degree from Carleton University and a Master's degree in Global Affairs from the Monk School of Global Affairs. Thanks so much for joining us, Stephanie. So I was wondering, just to start off, could you describe some of the work you've done pertaining to digital democracy policy and what initially brought you uh, to this field? Thanks for having me. So I started off uh, as a journalist for a number of years and I actually came back right here uh, to the Monk School at U of T. And then uh, after I graduated, I joined the Center for International Governance Innovation in Waterloo. And initially, um, I came on board to be a research associate working on cybersecurity, but I started in July 2016, and then a few months later was the U.S. election, and then all of a sudden, uh, disinformation and the online information space became a bigger and bigger part of security issues, frankly, um, and uh, the way that uh, democracy works and the way that international relations works. So. That was my uh, sort of crash introduction to the issue. Uh, and then I joined the Public Policy Forum earlier this year as part of their Digital Democracy Project, uh, which is a partnership with the uh, Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill University. So I've uh, been working on those issues as part of the, the DDP most recently. Wow, that sounds like really good timing. Could you tell us a little bit more about the Digital Democracy Project? I understand that the final report will be published in January uh, of 2020 and aims to shed light on how disinformation and polarization operate and influence discourses online in Canada. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we started off in the summer, uh, around August this year. And it was, uh, a, as I said, a partnership between the Public Policy Forum and McGill. Uh, and there's also a, a component uh, based here at U of T, uh, Professor Peter Lowen, who's with the Monk School, uh, and Eric Merkley, who's a postdoctoral student here, they were members of the uh, the survey team. 
So this uh, was interesting about this project is that it, it combined survey research and sort of survey-based experiments with online findings, so how people were actually interacting on various social media platforms uh, related to the election. So we uh, sort of stitched these two different aspects of information together to give us a, a broader picture of not just how people said they identified and how they said they consumed media, but actually what they were doing in, in real time. Um, and uh, one really interesting part that's going to be included in our, our final report in January is that we were also able to have access to uh, a metered survey. So people who signed up for the survey uh, opted into getting a, a browser extension so we could see what news sources they were consuming during the, the course of the election. So it was a way to sort of combine uh, people's political leanings, uh, their, some of the behavioral information we were able to glean from the survey, with what uh, what sort of information sources people were consuming and sharing online, and uh, how that related to their their political identity. Well, um, that's that's very interesting. So I was wondering that heading into this past election cycle, the use of bots as well as um, malign online actors uh, with foreign funding were definitely a large concern for Canadians. But I understand that actually that turned out not to be the case. Could you go into depth a bit more about that? Sure. Um, well, and I think we were all, you know, that was one of the reasons for this project is that, you know, there was reason to believe that Canada would be vulnerable to this information in the election. Um, the, the communication security establishment had warned that Canada would be vulnerable to this. And you know, we, we saw some of our allies in, in NATO and the G7 who had their, their elections attacked. So um, definitely we, we, it was all hands on deck. Um, and in the end, and again, we're, we're still doing analysis on this, um, but so far the consensus from people who've been watching this seems to be that there wasn't a lot of concerted disinformation the way that we might have seen in, in the U.S. election in 2016 or the, the French election um, shortly thereafter. So um, at this point, it's, it's hard to say why. Um, you know, certainly Canada brought in some new uh, Bill C-76, the, the Election Modernization Act, uh, which might have taken away some of the, uh, you know, some of the low-hanging fruit, so to speak, mm -hmm. some, of, some of the entry points, um, you know, but by putting tighter restrictions on, on advertising on digital platforms. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it was, so far we, um, we, we didn't see as much as we expected to see. I mean, that's a relief for sure. Yeah, uh, if I can add to that, though, um, I, I think the bigger issue is that we didn't, you know, even though we didn't see you know, IRA trolling, internet research agency, the, the so-called Russian troll farm. We, we didn't see that kind of activity as blatantly. Um, a lot of what we saw was more in a gray area. It wasn't so much the black and white, you know, sending false information or false memes or creating false website. We saw a lot of stuff that was, you know, very torqued. So it would be sort of an, an extremely warped political view about things. Um, we saw a lot of memes um, that were sort of, again, more out of context. Uh, there wasn't a lot of stuff that was blatantly false. And that's, uh, I think that's, that's part of the, the changing landscape right now is that it's a lot of things that aren't necessarily false, uh, but they could still be very divisive. And where were these gray area uh, informational sources coming from? It probably wasn't established news sources. Yeah, um, and again, a lot of it was just, you know, we weren't, uh, you know, aside from the notorious Buffalo Chronicle article about, about Justin Trudeau, um, we didn't, we, a lot of it was, again, it would be Facebook memes or, or, or Twitter memes, um, you know, where it was just, you'd, you'd have a picture with like a, an inflammatory caption on it. 
Um, and a lot of that would spread through through social media, um, you know, Facebook groups in particular, um, which is an, another challenge because it, it's a little bit harder to track that than it would be um, through a more public-facing platform such as Twitter. So it was more decentralized and it might yeah. have been harder to establish where people put their trust in uh, in, in each other or from social media or from, again, the more established yeah. news sources. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think decentralized is a really great word for that because it wouldn't be, um, you know, in many cases, not this didn't appear to be orchestrated campaigns. It would be, you know, either individuals who had a, a political agenda who would just be sending this stuff out and spreading it through, through circles of people online. Uh, they'd sort of form their own networks organically. That's, that's very interesting, because I, I, I'm prompted to ask then, I saw that in the United States, there's currently an inquiry going into Facebook, where political parties uh, would be able to advertise on Facebook and maybe use facts that weren't 100% accurate. Um, was that an issue uh, in this past cycle for, for our Canadian parties? Um, yeah, in particular, uh, we saw the conservatives doing this on Chinese language media, um, where they would have their... Um, their Chinese language Facebook page that would put out advertising, which again was not 100% false. Um, the example I'm thinking of is they, they took sort of a, a response that Justin Trudeau had made during the French language debate uh, where he was asked by Andrew Scheer if he was planning on legalizing hard drugs, uh, and he said not at this time. And then the, the advertising that went out over the, uh, the conservatives' Chinese language uh, Facebook ads would say things like, uh, Justin Trudeau might legalize hard drugs, or he's you know he's he's planning on it, or I, I forget what the exact phrasing was. Um, so again, this was something that um, I don't think we'd seen before. Um, it, it's certainly not unusual to have attack ads by, by political parties, uh, but this was really just sort of on the borderline of whether it would be considered true or false information. Yeah, I can imagine that that would be something that would be difficult to legislate as it wouldn't necessarily fall into an existing camp or an existing law uh, in order to be enforced. Yeah, and, and that was, uh, you know, well, Bill 76 uh, did put in a lot of really strong, um, you know, really strong measures that did take away some of the, the low-hanging fruit. It still leaves some of the, those gray areas because you can, you know, it puts on tight restrictions for third-party advertisers and for foreign advertising. Uh, but you know, not so much for the existing political parties. So, so some of the problems that we had sort of fell between the, the cracks of C Bill C-76. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, I wanted to ask as well, I know that uh, the PPF looked also quite extensively into the issues that motivated voters. Were there any findings there that may have been unanticipated regarding what people actually stake their votes on? Yeah, it... Um, it's hard to say. One thing that we saw from the very beginning and uh, was that uh, the environment uh, main, mm -hmm. remained a very high, like a, one of our issues of top concern for, for people that we surveyed. Um, and one of the interesting things that we found is, is the issues that mattered uh, to the Canadians we surveyed were not necessarily the issues that parties or journalists were, were talking about uh, online. Um, so we saw, you know, there was much more discussion from the political parties uh, and from journalists about the SNC-Lavalin scandal, uh, whereas for the, the people we surveyed, it was way down on their list of concerns. So issue, issues like the environment and the economy, I think, were, were pretty, uh, pretty high up on the list during the campaign. Yeah, I, I certainly was exposed to a lot of that um, mm -hmm. as, a, as a voter. Um, so I wonder then, given your own background in journalism, 
what do you think the role is for journalists, uh, not solely in speaking to the issues that Canadians are, are motivated uh, to vote on, but also in this sort of post-truth era, uh, you mentioned a gray area before, what is the capacity uh, for journalists to really make a polarized public more amenable to true information rather than dis or miss or gray information? Yeah, well, like everything else, that's, a, that's another complicated area because mm -hmm. we found that, you know, fortunately, um, most of the people that we surveyed did t tend to have fairly high trust in the Canadian media as a source for political information. Um, and they did tend to choose sort of mainstream Canadian sources, um, you know, across the board, regardless of their political leanings. Uh, so we saw sources like CBC and CTV, um, Global News, the Globe and Mail, like th those were pretty highly trusted across the board, no matter what party you chose. Uh, so people would not necessarily be more likely to get questions right uh, if they consumed a lot of media than if they did not. So what that means is that we, as part of our, our survey research, we asked uh, our respondents a series of factual questions about different issues of different aspects of Canadian policy. Uh, and there would be you know, factual questions like, did Canada admit more refugees this year or last year? Or is our national debt higher now than it was five years ago? Th those kinds of questions. And people who consumed more media um, were not always likely to get those questions right. So, which suggests a few things. Um, you know, one spin that we heard on it is maybe the, the media is not doing its job right. Uh, but we think that what's more likely is that people, um, if, if you have um, a political motivation, you're more likely to, to be an interested reader. So you're, you're filtering the news through your own, uh, you know, through your own biases and through your own, own belief systems. So that's a bit of a challenge to overcome. Um, another issue is that you know, the, the media landscape and the digital landscape is changing so quickly that journalists are still learning in a lot of ways what's out there and how to navigate this. Um, some organizations are a lot stronger than others. Uh, the group Data and Society has done a lot of uh, great work um, on the, uh, what they call source hacking. So it's the idea that people with, uh, with particular interests, um, particularly on the, the far right end of the spectrum, uh, it becomes one of their, their motivations and one of their um, you know, means of operating is trying to get their ideas into mainstream journalistic discourse. So even if they're you know, being debunked, they still consider it a win if, if they're being picked up. Uh, so what we found, um, and actually this, this is a separate little bit of research that I've been doing with uh, Chris Tanover, a researcher at the University of British Columbia. And before the election, we, we spoke to a bunch of journalists uh, in different newsrooms across, across the country, um, French and English language media, uh, newsrooms of different sizes and different regions of the country. Uh, and we found that there's a huge variety between people who were aware of these issues and people who weren't. Or, you know, they, they thought they were prepared, but they, they weren't really sure. Um, or they were, you know, some of them were planning on doing, you know, digging into disinformation. Some of them thought it wouldn't be an issue because they, they didn't think it would affect them. So uh, I think there's a lot to be done in terms of educating journalists um, about these kinds, of, um, these kinds of campaigns that they might be the, the targets of. Uh, and just making sure that they're they're more aware of what's out there, so they can, uh, you know, keep a keep a better eye on when people are trying to pull one over on them. Um, a lot of the times, they think that they, as a rule, they think they have pretty good BS detectors and they're critical thinkers, and they are. Uh, but this is just uh, an entirely different ballgame than I think a lot of people are, are familiar with. 
Uh, but I'm going to say on the whole that they, I think they did, they did a pretty good job um, this election, this time around. Uh, but yeah, the potential is always out there, especially in breaking news situations when everything's moving really quickly. Yeah, something to keep an eye on. Definitely. Um, so I, I just wonder, going back to these right-wing journalists from some of the more fringe news organizations like The Rebel or The Post Millennial, are they representing a growing share of uh, Canadian voters' consumption, or is that something that actually isn't making as much of an imprint as, as someone watching the debates, for example, might think? Because they were referenced quite a lot. Right. And I don't know if we can say growing. Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't think we have that information. But what we did find is that uh, there is pretty minuscule in terms of our survey research of what people said that they were reading. Um, they definitely seem to take a lot, up a lot more space online, particularly on Twitter. Um, but as we know, the Twitter discourse doesn't always represent the general Canadian population. So um, it's if you're only spending time on Twitter, I think it's easier to think that they have a, a bigger role than they do in reaching the general Canadian public. Yeah, I'm certainly guilty of that. <laughs> um, so I think that brings me to my next question, which is about the future. Clearly, the world has changed a great deal since the last election in the past five years. I wonder tentatively what your insights would be about the future of the internet. What is going to shape the consumption patterns of Canadian voters and news consumers in the future, and what issues maybe ought we be aware of? It's a huge question. Yeah, um, it's. I think what we're seeing again is uh, we're seeing, I think, a little bit more of a fragmentation of you know who's consuming what sources in terms of, of online platform. Uh, you know, certainly Facebook is becoming more of, a, of an older audience. Um, you know, Twitter, again, is a very, you know, tends to be the people who are focused on, on policy and politics and, and journalism, which is in a way important because those are the people who are, end up influencing the public discussion in a lot of ways. Um, and then, you know, the younger, younger audiences, I mean, they're, they're going to different platforms. They've, you know, I don't know if we're going to see disinformation on TikTok. It could happen. <laughs> I hope but, not. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, uh, I think the, the fragmentation, uh, and not just of different platforms, but of, of different segments within the platforms. So again, Facebook groups, where we've seen private or semi-private groups, um, those are tricky because we don't have as much insight into what's going on with those because they're not always public, um, you know, or, or you know, Discord channels and things like that. Um, so I think that that is something to keep an eye on. Um, the fact that in a country like Canada, we do have a very diverse population. Um, I mentioned a little bit earlier with the, the Chinese language uh, media that was um, had some false information that was going out or, or misleading uh, information. Um, that's something where, you know, again, we're going to need to keep an eye on it. And I think we need to draw on people who are not necessarily the people who usually get asked to do this kind of uh, uh, this kind of research or this kind of discussion. Um, to, to because there are you know, different communities that exist and typical English language or French language speaking people might not have the, the insights and this could be a vector for disinformation. Um, and certainly in the case of the Chinese government, uh, we know WeChat might be used, for example, um, to, to influence various sectors of the, the Canadian population. Um, I think other than that, it's uh, it's going to be really interesting to see because I think there is a bit of a, a growing consensus uh, that there needs to be some kind of regulation of the internet. Um, what form that takes and how various countries participate is going to be really interesting. And I think the way that we balance this while maintaining human rights, um, you know, there's 
always been debate uh, about you know, the so-called going dark phenomenon. Uh, if you encrypt communications, if you encrypt you know, WhatsApp chats or, or Facebook messages, um, you don't have that insight into what people are saying to each other, and, and you lose another way of looking at a, a different potential vector for, for spreading disinformation or harmful speech. But on the other hand, uh, there are very good reasons not to, uh, to support encryption because we, you know, we do protect people's mail and their, their phone calls, and you need to have measures in place uh, before you, just anyone can eavesdrop on people. So uh, these are very tricky situations because you're trying to maintain you know, the rights that we value in a democratic society, like you know, citizens' uh, freedom of expression, um, with trying to make sure that there isn't large-scale manipulation going on uh, of political discourse. So um, this is not an easy question by any stretch, no. and, and I think that uh, the next few years are, are going to be um, really critical to see how, that, uh, how the discussion takes place. So we can expect some changes to the Canadian political landscape in the next few years? Uh, I suspect so. Um, in the previous government, uh, the Minister of Democratic Institutions, Karina Gould, had sort of been signaling that Canada was looking uh, at bringing in some form of regulation on this. Uh, Canada's in a tricky position, too, because we're a country of 35 million people, uh, and it's hard for us to kind of go it alone, um, especially when you've got sort of two main streams that are emerging, where the United States has still been very hands-off with regulation, uh, and Europe has been very, very proactive on it. So um, I think Canada is... Uh, has to be careful about which one of those sides it aligns with, but I, I think that it would be very difficult for Canada to come to try and forge its own path. I, I think the, the most likely is that we're going to see it uh, hewing more to one side or the other. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me. It's been very interesting. Great. Thank uh, you for having me. Yeah, and I look forward to seeing uh, what the PPF produces in the future. Absolutely. We'll share it with you. Once again, that was Stephanie McClellan. You've been listening to Beyond the Headlines. Many thanks to our guests for joining us to discuss the threats digital disinformation poses to democracy. Today's show was produced by Duncan Cooper, Anna Miller, and Diana Liu. The views expressed on the show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out podcasts of all our episodes on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net. If you're a fan of our show or want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at BYOND underscore headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves.